Welcome back to 60 Weeks, 60 Books, Week 52, a full year of these podcasts completed. This week, the book is short, but its implications and shadow are long, dark, and far from resolved. And to understand its impact on me, I realised I needed to go back a long way to primary school. Back in week four, remembering the absolute joy of where the wild things are in the newly carpeted, freshly painted library of our new school building on Olive Street, I did not dwell on what it was to be a child in an international school. But as a teacher, I recall that phase of my education vividly. Those four years were my happiest in any school. What I now realise is just how special that school was, how rare and unusual. I was a student at Washington International School from 1968 to 1972, from when I was four until I was eight. We children came in all shapes, colours and sizes. The children came from embassies and international organisations, such as the World Bank and the IMF primarily, especially since the founder of the school was herself the wife of a World Bank official. Alongside the children of expats were scattered some American children, most were the offspring of what scornful sorts might now describe as the liberal wokerati, journalists, trust fund families running art house cinemas and that tiny niche of super rich who were able to fly to Paris for the spring collection and wanted their children to be sophisticated citizens of the world. And from the start, there were scholarship places for black children from the parts of Washington where most white and expat people never ventured. Mixed in with the cheerful children of diplomats from Francophone Africa and the Caribbean, with people like me, half white, half brown, with a dolly mixture of nationalities, they were just part of the class. I remember Quintin vividly, who was long, lanky, and brought in the coolest ever show-and-tell object. He opened up a cardboard box to reveal a praying mantis, which he picked up and put on the front of his shirt. And there was Angie who I got to know because she and I both ended up in the library at the end of the day, waiting for our mothers to finish work. We played, we read, we chatted. She came home to play, we gave her a ride home, and I remember my father erupting at my mother. In those days, there seemed to be a huge, invisible barrier between the northwest district of Washington, where we lived, and the rest of the city, and it was seen as dangerous to drive out of the safe expat enclaves of Arlington, Bethesda, Chevy Chase. But perhaps it was dangerous. 1968 was the year when in April, Martin Luther King and then in June, Bobby Kennedy were assassinated, triggering riots in Washington. There were regular demonstrations and protests against the Vietnam War, students waving placards and bellowing, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? I remember my father coming home weeping as his bus route went past the marches where police were using tear gas to disperse protesters. Looking back, it occurs to me that the Jesuits were right about the impact of our education and experiences up to the age of seven or eight. My basic attitudes to all sorts of things were definitely formed before I was eight. It never occurred to me that a school where all the teachers and the children came in every shade and permutation available to Homo sapiens was unusual. 
that men or women living together was any different to my parents living together. My parents had friends who were openly gay. Most of my friends were like me, children of mixed race marriages, and women worked. Nothing to see here. It was when I went to England and was the only child in boarding school to have any sort of ethnically varied heritage and a funny name. When my best friend wept and wailed after her big brother was kicked out of the house when he came out to his father. When my mother had incredible problems setting up bank accounts and credit cards and renting a property until she had a letter from my grandfather as her guarantor. When I read Wallace Inca's poem, Telephone Conversation, 35 lines depicting the awkwardness and discomfort of an African man trying to find a room to rent in 1960s London, that I encountered the insidious evil of prejudice. Gradually, steadily, I began to grasp the extent of the strange fruits of bigotry, discrimination, injustice, inequality. In the 1980s, as I was in my 20s, there were films and books, The Colour Purple, My Beautiful Andrette, and when I'd read Alice Walker, there was Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou, Ralph Ellison's The Invisible Man, James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain. Whilst travelling in the US, I came across an art exhibition of the work of the German-American designer, Wenold Rice, who produced amazing portraits from the Harlem Renaissance, particularly of Langston Hughes, and Zora Neale Hurston. That led me to pick up a volume of Hughes' poems. I read Chester Himes's crime novels, A Rage in Harlem and Real Cool Killers. Around 1987, James Baldwin died. There were a slew of tributes, clips of appearances on talk shows, a documentary in 1989. That sense that life for black people in America was still tough, still hard scrabble, and fraught with fundamental cruelty, persisted. Fostered by the 1992 Los Angeles riots following the arrest and beating of Rodney King. At the overwhelmingly white schools where I worked, my pupils introduced me to Naz's Ilmatic and Wu-Tang Clan, to NWA, Tupac, Biggie. I listened absorbed and the messages of songs like Gangster's Paradise and Ghetto Gospel hit powerfully home. The layering of film, TV, music and news continued year in, year out. Because I didn't visit the States, because I was busy with work and family and studying, it did feel remote and distant, not to mention the optimism of Obama's election. There was The Wire, films from Spike Lee, Mudbound, Hillary Jordan's powerful novel about a black soldier returning to Mississippi after World War II. Gradually, steadily, I heard that sustained message that being black in America was not simply unfair, unequal, but was potentially lethal. Between 2012 and 2014, the murders of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown and Eric Garner were ample evidence of just how hostile society could be for young black boys and men. In 2016, Beyoncé released her film and album, Lemonade, and the Haitian director, Raoul Peck, produced I Am Not Your Negro, a book and a film based on James Baldwin's final manuscript, 30 or so pages, 
notes for a book that would commemorate three men he had called his friends, three men assassinated between 1963 and 1968, who all, as Peck puts it in his foreword, were eliminating the haze of racial confusion. And for me, Peck's film and the companion book that he produced from Baldwin's tentative notes for the book he was planning to call Remember This House certainly eliminated all confusion. Peck compiled notes, letters, manuscripts, speeches and quotations from Baldwin's books, collections of his essays and his television appearances. The slim volume is divided into six sections where his notes are interspersed with images of Medgar Evers, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, his three murdered friends, none of whom, as he points out, reached 40. Baldwin had been living in Paris, missing very little about the States, apart from his family. In the autumn of 1957, he saw a photograph of a young black woman, Dorothy Counts, walking through a crowd of jeering, heckling, spitting white people as she made her way into school. But this was not any school or a simple enrolment. This was Harry Harding's school, an all-white school in North Carolina, forced to admit Dorothy Counts, the daughter of a professor of philosophy at Johnson C. Smith University. Baldwin saw the photograph and was, in his own words, furious, filled with hatred and pity, and it galvanised him into returning to America where he became hugely involved in civil rights. This first section is called Paying Dues, and the second is very short, Heroes. Here, Baldwin sets out the fundamental problem of black lives in America, certainly in his lifetime. Every stick and stone, every face is white. And, as he says, the shock of discovery that the country that is your birthplace has not, in its whole system of reality, evolved any place for you. The next section, Witness, includes Baldwin's reflections and recollections of Evers, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, their roles, their goals. Peck included transcripts from an extraordinary programme made in June 1963 called The Negro and the American Promise, an hour-long compilation of three interviews conducted by a professor of psychology at City College of New York, Kenneth Clark. Clark chose to interview Baldwin, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Peck picks brief extracts from the interviews. Baldwin's words in particular are resonant and in this age of Trump, in this age of populism and division, they seem more apposite than ever. I am terrified at the moral apathy, the death of the heart, which is happening in my country. These people have deluded themselves for so long that they really don't think I'm human. And I base this on their conduct, not on what they say. In the next section, Purity, Baldwin explores an emotional poverty so bottomless and a terror of human life, of human touch, so deep that virtually no American appears able to achieve any viable organic connection between his public stance and his private life. 
These words are a terrible indictment of the fundamental hypocrisy that underpins the American dream, American exceptionalism, and the circus that we see unfolding even now as Trump campaigns, funded by the money of followers as beguiled as any disciple of a cult leader, by his deliberate stoking of division and separation, the phony promises of MAGA, his outright lies and his ability to make the legitimate criminal proceedings against him seem like petty vengeance. I read and reread Baldwin and I shiver. Especially when Peck produces a sequence of apologies from white politicians, most say simply, I'm sorry, I'm deeply sorry, I'm very sorry. And Trump says, I'm sorry I did this to you, but you have to get used to it. Baldwin states clearly his view. The American way of life has failed to make people happier or to make them better. To look around the United States today is enough to make profits and angels weep. He calls it blindness or cowardice, which allows us to pretend that life presents no reasons for being bitter. Baldwin returned to France in 1970, visiting the state, certainly, but never again living there permanently. The book and the film end on another brief extract from that brilliant and extraordinary interview that Baldwin gave in 1963. He states his belief that the white population of the United States invented the concept of blackness, darkness, and he uses the N-word, a word that I feel too uncomfortable to speak. Baldwin goes to the heart of the issue. I am not an N-word. I'm a man. Then he speaks of the need of the white population of the US needing to invent the concept of the Negro, the N-word, the inferior, lacking in rights, subjected to violence, degradation, and he puts the onus firmly back on the white population. You invented him. You, the white people, invented him. You've got to find out why. And the future of the country depends on that. Here we are. 60 years since Baldwin spoke these words. Not only in the US, but across the globe, white people have not been able to face up to the why. When challenged, when confronted with the implications of slavery, of colonialism and conquest, underpinned by a fundamental need to see one type of person as less valuable than another, there is floundering, fury, accusations of wokery, flimsy defences based on whataboutery and ad hominem attacks. Our divisions are deepened by social media, between black and white, between sexes and genders, between old and young, rich and poor, all of us dwelling in our echo chambers, what John Byrne Murdoch of the FT described only recently as algorithmically walled gardens. There are times when it feels easy to be pessimistic, listening to the news, scanning the front page of a newspaper, encountering the spin and the lies, the vicious rhetoric of politicians mocking the poor, the homeless, the vulnerable. It is difficult to resist gloom and cynicism. This year, I've been working with students on Kendrick Lamar's groundbreaking 2015 album To Pimp a Butterfly and 13th, Ava DuVernay's shocking documentary about the abuses and inequity of the American prison system. 
What would Baldwin make of the ways in which rap and hip-hop have evolved and of the systematic exploitation of black people and immigrants across the United States? But then I remember that early education back at Washington International School, the schooling in acceptance respect, tolerance, celebration of our individuality, our heritage, where we come from and the huge possibilities of where we may yet go. I think of the wrestling with complicated, contradictory ideas that I have seen day in, day out, over 30 years in different classrooms in Beijing, in Brussels, in Crawley, Castletown and Sao Paulo, where children from 5 to 18 have said, but that's not fair, that's not right. That's wrong. That's terrible. We have to change this. It is hard to tell what difference the quiet, consistent work of educators really makes. I think of Jane Elliott, now 90, who the day after the assassination of Martin Luther King threw out her lesson plans and played a game with her eight and nine-year-old students, the blue eyes, brown eyes game, where in the first week those with brown eyes were favoured and privileged in the classroom, followed by a switch to the following week, and then some reflection from the children on what they had learned about discrimination and prejudice. Perhaps the most disquieting aspect of this experiment was the unkindness, the arrogance and bossiness that those in the superior eye group displayed to their perceived inferiors. In these days where diversity, equity and inclusion are key concepts in education, it does feel as though gradually, steadily, with persistence and commitment, we are beginning to ask that question. Why have we sought to dehumanise and degrade our fellow humans? And gradually, steadily, we are answering with greater self-knowledge, compassion and determination to break down the barriers challenge and confront the darkness that drives us. And next week, we will be taking a look at a controversial novel that is one man's attempt to explore that darkness. Join me for a look at Conrad's Congo classic, Heart of Darkness. (laughs) ¶¶ 